This is the Championship Chat Podcast, your home of news, views and debate from England's second tier. Hello and welcome to another episode of the Championship Chat Podcast. I'm your host, Elliot Jackson, and I'm joined as always by George Smith. George, how are you? Not too bad, mate, not too bad. Been another, well, I'll say another busy week. First week back at work after a couple of weeks off. Been, been busy, but uh, yeah, off tomorrow, so uh, not too bad. How about you? Yes, I started a new job this week. Uh, moved over from Lanx Live to the Lancashire Telegraph to cover Blackburn Rovers. So, first week in the job. Um, obviously, I was at the game at Ewood on Saturday, which I'm looking forward to talking about in a little bit. But yeah, it's been a good week. It's been a busy week with interviews with Greg Broughton as well on top of that in the week. But it's been uh, it's been a good one. I've enjoyed the championship action this weekend. I sat down and watched um, the Friday night game in full, um, which I've got plenty of opinions to, to air on that game in particular. Yeah, it was nice to be back covering Blackburn again regularly, so really enjoyed it. Um, as always, a reminder to make sure you are subscribed to this podcast feed, which you can find on all your usual platforms, and make sure you're following us on Twitter and Instagram at ChampChatPod24. A big thank you, as always, to our sponsors, Cards Accepted, for supporting the podcast this season. If you're looking to take car payments with no contract or monthly fees, please visit cardsaccepted.co.uk. They provide a discount on the RRP of all sum-up devices, so make sure you go and check them out. And over the next hour, we'll be bringing you our reaction to the biggest talking points in the Championship weekend as Southampton get a spanking from Leicester City. This is the Championship Chat Podcast. And George, I do think we need to start with that Friday night game. It was the headline fixture of the weekend. Southampton won, Leicester City 4. I suppose the silver lining for Southampton is at least it wasn't 9-0. Um, which obviously happened a couple of years ago. But they were 2-0 down very early on, Southampton, conceded after 21 seconds, which after a two-week international break, having been spanked 5-0 by Sunderland beforehand, probably doesn't give much for the work that you've been doing on the training ground. And I want to do this in two parts because I do think we need to address both parts. I'll, I'll take Leicester and I'll let you have a bit of Southampton and I'll give my thoughts on Saints as well. But for Leicester, I thought this was the best... Certainly the first half in particular, I thought it was the best 45 minutes they'd put together this season. I think it was the best performance this season. It was the most succinct they'd looked, the most slick that they looked. I thought Harry Winks was central to all of their good play and they really were the best team in the in the first half. Obviously scoring very early on with uh, Jamie Vardy taking advantage of some very generous defending from Southampton and a lovely move, pressing high up the pitch to win the ball back. Uh, and a lovely ball from Keenan Dewsbury Hall into the path of Casey McAteer, who really has come from nowhere this summer. It was on loan, I think, with AFC Wimbledon, was it, last year um, in League Two. So for him to be playing you know, regularly off the right-hand side for Enzo Maresca's championship title contenders, I, I like his technique. He's really good off both feet. He's right-footed, naturally playing on the right side. He's not lightning quick, but that's OK because you've got uh, Madavidi on the left-hand side who has got that natural speed but he's very good with both feet and you'll remember the goal that he scored at Rotherham which won them the game left foot into the top corner similar here takes a touch with his right as it's coming across him and no problems with the finish across the goalkeeper with his left um, Southampton got one back a little bit of an error from um, from Doyle but nothing nothing major really I've just thought Leicester were really good and I thought Wilfred Ndidi probably had his best game in that sort of attacking number eight role, which I've been pretty clear that I don't think he suits one bit. And that seems perfect for Cassidy when he's, I don't know, when he, he's up and running. I'd, you'd expect him to be up and running by now, but he's not got in the side yet. But that, that right number eight role looks perfect for Cassidy as a box crashing midfielder. But I thought Ndidi did really well in that role, actually, and um, was better in the final third took his goal really well, cutting back inside on his right foot. And then obviously Mavidi uh, got the fourth on the counter-attack where Southampton had just chucked so many men forward. So really impressed with Leicester. I think it was their best performance of the season, particularly in that first half. For Southampton, I'll let you pick this apart. But in my, for me, the biggest thing, they, they were absolutely diabolical in transition. I don't understand how you can have a team that is possession heavy. You've built a philosophy, a style of play where you're going to keep the ball. So naturally, you're going to have a lot of men in attack to circulate the ball. How can you not have a plan or seemingly not have a plan to stop counter-attacks? When Manchester City played this similar style in terms of heavy possession, whether it's Arsenal, 
they've got plans, whether it's inverting the fullbacks, which I know Southampton do, but they've they've got fullbacks that have got no defensive awareness whatsoever. Like Cal Walker Peters is brilliant going forward, he's good on the ball. Same with Ryan Manning. But they're not defensive players, really. And so you've got no way of stopping counterattacks. There's no cleverness or cynicalism in that team to to pull people back. And then they just get run at. And if you lose the ball, which you're going to do anyway at any level of football, but particularly in the championship, you know, they are trying to play elite level football and, and you know, in a, a highly skilled style of play with championship footballers. They're going to make more mistakes than Manchester City doing it in the Premier League. You've got to have a plan for what you're going to do when you give the ball away and how you get back into shape and how you slow down counterattacks. Because against Southampton, against Sunderland and against Leicester, they have been wide open every single time they've given the ball away. And that, for me, is the most damning thing about this team and the biggest problem Russell Martin's got to solve. He's got a huge problem to solve. I think you've summed it up really well. Um, I mean, when, like you said at the top of this, when you've lost your last game prior to the international break, 5-0, and having produced a, a quite simply atrocious performance up in up in the northeast, the last thing you want to do is go a goal down within the first minute, and that's exactly what happened against Leicester. And at that point, you you did sense that a could, a, another drubbing could have been on the cards. And yeah, it didn't get quite as bad as the 9-0 Leicester inflicted on them in the Premier League a few seasons ago. But... Leicester, if they if they'd taken more of the chances, it could it could have certainly been five or six, maybe even seven. So Russell Martin, he's got a really big job on his hands here because you look at that Southampton team, and and we saw them both live in the first game at Sheffield Wednesday on the opening night of the season. Admittedly, they were up against a really poor side that evening, but they bossed the ball so well. They looked so confident on on the ball. But when you take out the players that they've lost since that opening game, obviously James Ward-Prowse has gone, Nathan Teller's gone, two players that play key roles in that victory. Southampton have gone backwards at a rapid rate of knots. They, they conceded four at home to Norwich in that breathtaking four-all draw. They, they, they conceded at home to QPR. They conceded at Plymouth. They're still yet to keep a clean sheet this season. I think it's 17, 16 or 17 league games now without a clean sheet, which is an astonishing run for a team that at this level, should be doing a hell of a lot better defensively. So, like yourself, I watched the game in its entirety on Friday night and a very entertaining game for, for a neutral, really enjoyable contest. But Southampton defensively, I mean, goodness me, it was a car crash from minute one, wasn't it? The fact that they kicked the game off and then conceded after 21 seconds, it kind of says it all about this Southampton style and how, yes, you've got to be very confident in possession, but when... You're being closed down like the, le- the way the Leicester press got at them from minute one. You've just got to think safety first and clear your lines. They dawdled in possession too much. And Leicester clearly had, uh, had analysed that in their pre-match thinking. And that's exactly the way that they exploited their weaknesses. The, th- the, f- the three goals in the first half from a Southampton point of view were a car crash. The fourth goal, yeah, it's the fourth goal, isn't it? Southampton are committing bodies forward, trying to get back into the game. And Mavadidi just obviously helps himself to the freedom of St Mary's and runs half the length of the pitch and scores. But for Russell Martin, I think he's got to look at this and bear in mind they've got Ipswich to come on Tuesday night as we record this on, on Sunday evening. So you might be listening to this after that midweek game at St Mary's. But I look at Southampton now and they've got to find a way to become a hell of a lot more resolute and harder to break down because if you're going to play this tippy-tappy, tippy-tappy football, You've got to be able to defend. And yes, Southampton have got players to hurt you going the other way. The likes of Adozi, Armstrong, Che Adams, that's all said and good. But if you're sieving goals at sort of four or five a game, you're going to be in big trouble. This team's conceded the highest amount of goals in the division so far this season. It's shipped 16 already. It's an astonishing number for a team that has just come down from the Premier League after six games. So Russell Martin, like we said at the start of the season, it felt like a good move for him sort of a chance where he was going to be able to implement his philosophy with a, and I don't mean this with any disrespect to Swansea, a better group of players, players that were a higher calibre, certainly at this level. But it's all said and good knocking the ball around, completing five, 600 passes every single game. But if one, you've not got the end product to match it and you can't defend, it's an utterly pointless and meaningless sort of objective to try and achieve because you're not going to win games by completing passes. You win games by keeping the ball out of the net and scoring goals, as obvious as that sounds. So 
Yeah, on, re- on reflection, that Friday night game, it, it was an absolute shambles from start to finish for Southampton. And like you said, Southampton, that back line, in terms of the fullbacks, especially Walker Peters and Ryan Manning, very, very good attacking fullbacks. You're going to get a high number of assists you would expect from those two this season. But in terms of defending, they're getting caught out time and time again. Taylor Harwood Bellis came in on deadline day, really good signing. He got his first start against Leicester. Shea Charles accompanying him in the heart of the defence. Not really a partnership that you would have anticipated at the start of the season for, for, for the Saints. Mason Holgate's obviously there coming on loan from Everton as well. So I think it's a case of he's got to try and find something that settles down and find a way because been a, obviously there's been a few changes in that Southampton team with players coming and going. The window's shut now. He's got his squad set in stone until January at the very least. So the pressure's on Russell Martin, I think. I really do think he's not necessarily under pressure in terms of got to get win after win after win. He's got to find a way to make this style worthwhile. I think that's the thing for him because if you're conceding that, that, four or five goals... a really, really good way of putting it. You're yeah. literally right. He's got to make it worthwhile. Yeah, exactly. That's the thing. You know, we talk about, I don't know, the, the Barcelona team of about 2008, 2010 when it was Iniesta, Busquets, Xavi, Messi, that lot. Obviously a high, much, much better quality of player, but they played that style with purpose. They were always going to hurt teams. Southampton are passing teams to death but they're not necessarily doing anything with the ball. And that was a common theme at Swansea, let's be honest. Swansea had a lot of possession under Russell Martin, but it was rare that they blew teams away. So I think that's where we're at. Russell Martin, certainly not in a sense of where I'm thinking he's going to be under pressure, he's going to get the sack here, not by any stretch of the imagination. He's just got to make this style. If it's what he wants to do, which he's done throughout his career, he's just got to make it tick because Salomon got the attacking players to hurt teams. I thought Taylor Harwood Bellis looked really rusty actually, having he did not, not you know, you could tell he's not played any league yeah. games and it's not ideal could. coming at the end of the window. He's a really good player, so hopefully he will improve. Once this, up to uh, speed, they've got probably one of the best defenders outside the Premier League. I think so. England under twenty one captain, so you you know, you don't get that if you've got anything about you and we all saw how good he was at Burnley last year, didn't we? Let's move to the Saturday night kickoff, George. Cardiff City beat Swansea City 2 0 in the South Wales Derby. Before we go into the game, how on earth was this allowed to be a 7.45 kickoff on a Saturday, <laughs> given how stringent police are policing in football matches is across the UK? How did a South Wales derby, not not just like not get moved to 12 o'clock, but you've put it 7.45 on Saturday? I didn't see any reports of any trouble, but hopefully, I mean, I'm all for it. I, I, want, I hope more games get, you know, better spots <laughs> like that so we can have better atmospheres, but... It just just caught me surprised a little bit. But big win for Cardiff City, their first victory over Swansea for two seasons. Famously in this fixture, nobody had done the double over the other team for in its entire history, I believe, until two seasons ago when Swansea did the double. Then they did the double again last year. So definitely bragging rights were with the Swans, but Cardiff got themselves in front for a, a brilliant moment of quality from Ali Tanner, which... He was obviously the deciding factor in the game. I did think um, Yaku Mate looked really bright off the right-hand side as well with a couple of efforts on goal, but Tanner does so well. faces the defender up and it's a brilliant strike. Not only is it hit with precision, but there's pace behind it. You, can, you There's a great angle from behind the goal where you can see the whip and the pace that just beats the goalkeeper. Um, and then obviously he draws the foul for the penalty as well, which is so coolly composed and put in by Aaron Ramsey, who that must have been a special moment for him, boyhood. Cardiff City boy coming back to his uh, to his hometown club and getting the second goal, the, the icing on the cake in the South Wales derby. Um, I felt that Cardiff had been good this season, or certainly better than the results and the perfor- uh, the results have probably shown. We've seen obviously probably should have got something at Leicester. They've dropped um, points from two new winning positions at Leeds and at Ipswich. So it felt like this was a game they certainly came in in the better form. We spoke about Swansea obviously before the international break and starting. There's a, there's a few concerns and quite a lot of murmurs of discontent creeping in with them, but I think we'll probably go big on uh, them and analyse them another week. But I think for Cardiff, we should give them some flowers and say that this was a really good performance. Um, they look so much better in attack, um, which is obviously there was the big area of improvement from last season. And uh, Oli Tanner, the match winner, taking his goal excellently and uh, obviously deciding the South Wales derby. Yeah, definitely. I, I saw the bulk of this game, not all of it, but majority of it. And I have to say, Cardiff were, were full value for their victory. They were by far the better side. 
They looked a lot more energised for the occasion and a lot sort of more pumped up for it. And like you said, obviously it's been it's been a derby that's been dominated by Swansea in the last few years. So it'd be very sweet for Cardiff to have finally got one over on their on their old rivals. So I think for Cardiff though, ultimately, I think when you consider all of the turmoil they went through in terms of transfer embargoes and things like that, we were we were quite big fans of what they achieved in the summer. The recruitment was quite shrewd, I thought. The likes of Carlin Grant, Josh Bowler, Aaron Ramsey, obviously the headline addition and I think when you look at Cardiff's first six games, though they've not set the world alight, I think it's been a quite a steady start for Errol Bullet. I think seven points from the first six, when you consider the games that they've had, they've obviously had the, the likes of Leeds, Leicester, Ipswich away, and they've pushed all of them every step of the way. Admittedly, they squandered two goal leads in, in a couple of those games, but the fact that they went to Ipswich... Uh, Leeds and Leicester and didn't say get trounced by anybody I think says a lot about the sort of the endeavour and the mindset of this Cardiff team there seems to be a real work ethic about them and I think that's down to Errol Bullock because I think obviously at Derby you're going to get more emotion and more passion but you could sense in the Cardiff celebration to for the particularly the first goal against Swansea on Saturday evening when Oli Tanner scored there was such a togetherness within that Cardiff team and yeah like I say a Derby's going to make any goal celebration that little bit more special. But I just thought Cardiff looked like a team that knew what they wanted to do. There was sort of an identity to them. And, and I think for, for Errol Bullet, obviously a guy that's come into the Championship, and it was it was actually said by um, Gary Weaver, the Sky Sports commentator on Saturday evening, he said that Errol Bullet had said to him that apparently the Championship was proving a lot tougher than he imagined when he first arrived. Uh, in in this division and I'd imagine many managers from overseas find that uh, all the same but I've been quite impressed by what I've seen from Cardiff so far to be fair because like I said they've had some tough away games they edged past Sheffield Wednesday uh, last month with that 2-1 win and then got the 2-0 win against Swansea so I think there's signs of progress it's early days of course they've got seven points on the board like I say it's nothing uh, nothing earth shattering but I think it's sort of a, a steady away start and when you compare the fact that they're only a couple of points behind, say, Leeds and West Brom, who are two of the fancy teams for the playoffs at the very least, I think it kind of puts into perspective where Cardiff are at because they've obviously had a lot of troubles in recent years. But I think the squad now, it's got a quite a suitable blend to it. I think there's a lot more balance. The, the addition of Aaron Ramsey, though a lot of people frowned upon it at the time, saying he'll not, he'll not stay fit for two minutes. It's just going to be a pointless sign. It's more the emotional aspect and it's just sort of a fairy tale story to bring him back. The truth is, he, he's playing consistently at the minute. He's got three goals in his last four games and he's leading by example. That will have given the dressing room a huge boost bringing somebody like him into the team, a guy that's... Am I right in saying he's played every game as well? So fitness Yeah, yeah. He's start, I think he's started every single game so far. Yeah. He, he's certainly been a key figure in what they've done so far. And like I say, the likes of Josh Bowler, Yaku Meite, Carlin Grant, they are established championship players. Mate has been around the block for quite a while now after several years at Reading. Grant, like we said, if you can get him going again, you've got a really, really good championship player there. Josh Bowler, we know what he's capable of. I just think the squad now is a lot more rounded and a lot more balanced to, to what it was. And I must say, the, the other summer signing that's impressed me has been um, Manolis Siopis. I think that's how you say it. Siopis, the, the, the Greek midfielder that came in in the summer from Trabzonspor. He's been really good in that defensive midfield role, just anchoring things, keeping things neat and tidy and quite impressed by him against Swansea on um, Saturday evening. He looked quite quite sharp and quite tidy. So I think Errol Bullet's built a team, bearing in mind that they've not, not spent any money sort of thing. It's all been loans and freebies. They, they've, they've assembled quite a steady team, I think, for where Cardiff are at as a club at the minute. Obviously tied Mark McGuinness down to a long-term deal as well. So I think Cardiff, I think they can reflect on Errol Bullet's tenure, both on and off the pitch so far, really, really positively. So, yeah, great to get the Derby Day rights for them. And like I say, I think Cardiff slowly but surely are on a club moving in the right direction again. Absolutely. Right, let's go to Sunday now. And Leeds United, they beat Millwall 3-0 at the Den. Good win for Leeds building up on the momentum of four points before the international break with wins at Ipswich and that, that home draw of Sheffield Wednesday. Joel Perot with a brace in this one to take the game away from Millwall. First one was really well taken after a nice move down the left with Willie Nonto sliding him in. Good finish past the goalkeeper. And the second one um, was a bit of a, a scrappy goal. It was well worked between the lines. Really good ball punched through by Ethan Ampadu 
into that forward line and played out wide to Luke Ayling, crossed for Dan James, who really should have done much better with it, but sort of stumbled into it. And it fell to Perot at the back post to bag for number two. And then once that had gone in, Millwall um, chucking men forwards and Leeds got them on the counter-attack with the third goal. Really, really nice finish from uh, Jorginho Rute. Um, his third, uh, he got the third, which capped an excellent move from Leeds United. Good ball from James into his path. And Leeds just got a bit of swagger about them at the minute. I like the balance of the team now. They've got Somerville coming off the right-hand side, Nonto off the left, Perot in behind Ruta. And I think Joel Perot being a natural goal scorer, even playing as a number 10, it takes the pressure off the young striker a lot as well. But he took his goal really well. Lovely finish with his left foot right into the roof of the net. And I think Leeds will really benefit from the transfer window shutting. Daniel Falk has got a settled squad. He's got... The players he wants, he knows what he's working with, there's balance to it. And I think that Leeds will, will really kick on from now and we could see them put a little bit of a run together. I agree. This felt like a victory that sort of announced their arrival this season, I feel. I know they I went to Ipswich I know they went to Ipswich and won four three, what was it, three weeks ago, I think it was, as we record yeah. this. Uh, and obviously that was a big victory. But I think the fact that they've gone away to Millwall, which though Millwall have obviously not been at their fluent best so far this season, Sunday lunchtime, live on TV, this felt like a bit of a statement of victory that the football and the build-up to the first goal was very, very impressive. It was arguably one of the best team goals we've seen so far this season, involving Leeds attacking players and obviously finished off superbly by Joel Pirot, who, like you said, got a second in the second half, a little bit more scruffy that one, but... This to me felt like a Leeds team that sort of, sort of has now clicked, shall we say? Obviously, the the transfer business was slow, uh, for reasons we documented on last week's episode in the the transfer roundup that we did. But now they've got everything assembled, it feels like a squad that's got everything necessary to really launch an automatic promotion charge this this season. When you look at that front four that started this game, Somerville on the right, Nonto on the left. Perot in the 10 just behind Ruter. That is a formidable front four for this level. And Joel Perot, he's arguably been the best striker in the Championship for the last two years consistently at Swansea, banging the goals in week after week. He's got three in his first three games for, for Leeds, scored at Ipswich a couple of weeks, uh, three weeks ago. Ruter's off the mark now for, for, you know, scoring for the second away game, running, got an assist as well in this game. And then you look at the attacking options that Leeds have got on the bench and brought on in this game. Dan James, Jaden Anthony, Joe Gelhart, Ian Perveda was on the bench as well. This is a quite formidable crop of attackers that Daniel Fark has got to work with because Leeds, obviously they had a disastrous time of it last season in the Premier League, obviously flitted between managers and it, it just didn't work out and ended the season with Sam Allardyce and that was the point where a big reset was required. Farker's appointment was well received by some, frowned upon by others. Personally, I thought it was a good move. Been there, done it, got the T-shirt. And like I said, the summer recruitment was slow. It took a while. Leeds have got to lower that wage bill. They've got to shift some of their big earners out, which they did with the majority of them shifting them and moving them out on loan. But now that the, the window's shut, the squad's settled, I, I, I think you could go as far as saying that Leeds on their day have got the best team in the division, to be quite honest. With the, the attacking attacking players that they've got, I think Jaden Anthony on loan from Bournemouth is a really, really shrewd addition. I think in some ways, with obviously um, Sinistera going the other way, I think in some ways for the level Leeds are at and just needing that little bit of experience, though Anthony's still young, they might have got the better end of that deal, to be fair, because I really like what he did at Bournemouth a couple of years ago, Jaden Anthony went in the Championship. So, Really good signing to bring in. But this, like I say, felt like a bit of a statement win. Ipswich, yes, was impressive, but they did concede three goals in that game. And I know it's nitpicking. You know, when you go to a team that's been unbeaten since February and you end that run by scoring four, still conceding three, just one or two grey areas that need ironing out. It's back-to-back clean sheets now for Leeds, getting obviously a clean sheet against Sheffield Wednesday prior to the international break. So everything slowly but surely just seems to be clicking and slotting into gear for Daniel Farker. And like I said, with the... The attacking options that he's got, they're going to be a match for anybody. And I'll tell you something, looking at it on paper with the way Hull are going at the minute, that could be quite an interesting Yorkshire derby on Wednesday night between Hull and Leeds at the uh, MKM Stadium. So, yeah, Leeds looking good, up and running. And like I say, just feels like a bit of a announcement victory, this to sort of say, we're here, we're here to compete. 
Preston North End are still the championship leaders, George. They've got 16 points from their opening six games. Brilliant start for them. Um, and they beat Plymouth Argyle 2-1 at Deepdale. Um, new signing Liam Miller was the uh, the match winner here and certainly the, the brightest spark. Signed on loan from uh, Basling, Switzerland on deadline day. Played at left wing back, interestingly. Um, and a really, really nice goal to open the scoring. Cutting inside and finishing um, to make it 2-0 after Dwayne Holmes had headed in the opener. But he looked really bright. Again, more of a winger rather than but playing at wing-back. Shows Ryan Lowe's adaptability and how he's just starting to veer, not veer away from the back three because he's still playing it. But in possession, it's more of a four at times with um, Andrew Hughes perfectly capable of playing in that sort of left channel. So it means they can play a little bit more of an attack-minded player in that left channel. And with Miller, they got that directness. Uh, up front, Osmaic started up front as well. He looked a handful. The big strike signed on deadline day as well. Um, and he nearly had a goal in this one as well uh, with the score at 2-0. But Clem have got themselves back into it. Uh, lovely move with Luke Kundle playing the, the decisive pass in the end to put Ryan Hardy in. He's had a brilliant start to the championship season, scoring goals for fun. He took his goal really well. But Preston in the end had enough to see it through. And suddenly... They've got options. The squad, you know, you look at the team that played on Saturday, you know, Frocker Janssen was on the bench. Um, you've got Emil Reese jakobsen to come back into things as well. Suddenly, this Preston squad, you know, Ben Ben Whiteman didn't walk straight back into the team after coming back from injury as well. So, all of a sudden, Preston's squad, having done some work um, on deadline day to bring in these two attacking arrivals, it, it's got a bit of depth to it. It's got a little bit of versatility it looks like he's got options to freshen things up if people are, are not playing well or they just need some fresh legs and that can only bode well for Preston North End in terms of longevity across the course of this season most definitely they it's like I've always said momentum and confidence can do wonderful things in football and I don't think Preston fans would disagree with me with when I say the fact that Preston haven't got the best squad in the league they've not got the best starting 11 in the league they've not got the best resources in the league but they've got momentum, they've got confidence, and that's just continued because... I think they've I think got a few, good manager as well. They've got a very good manager. I mean, we we sung the praises of Ryan Lowe throughout last season when a few Preston fans were just getting a little bit restless, weren't they? And you decided to take a few on in that famous Twitter spat that we'll all remember. Well, should I say oh, X spat right. as it's now known? Well, well when, when are you wrong, Elliot? When are you wrong? I'm yet to find a moment. <laughs> but now, let's be honest. The, this Preston side is... It's impressive and it's quite entertaining to, to watch them at the moment because they're playing with sort of a little bit of freedom and it's almost like the shackles have just been loosened a little bit because they've brought in those few players that are sort of, like like I said a few weeks ago with Frock Argentin, it feels like an upgrade in terms of a bit of a, a bit like Zian Fleming when he came into Millwall last summer. It's sort of a something a little bit different to what we've been used to for a team of that type, a bit of a flair player. Someone's got a, you know, that bit of creativity about them and Preston have done that. Liam Miller looked really, really sharp uh, on Saturday. Obviously, he played a key hand in, in Dwayne Holmes getting the goal in the opening minute and then scored scored himself for the second. And then you've got a lot of experience throughout that team. The likes of Dwayne Holmes, who's had a really good start. Ali McCann, Brad Potts, they've been there. They've done it. They know what this league's all about. Alan Brown as well. And then, like you said, you look at the bench who they brought on on Saturday. Ben Whiteman, Frocko Jensen, Robbie Brady. There is a lot to like about this Preston team. Emil Reese is still to come back from injury as well. So I think Ryan Lowe quite quietly has assembled a really, really good squad over the summer. And it's been proven, obviously, with the results that they've had so far. And obviously, there's an automatic expectation amongst almost everyone that Preston at some point are going to fall away. They're not going to be able to be able to sustain this, this momentum and this run of form. Inevitably, they, they are going to have a bad patch at some point. It might come as soon as Tuesday night against Birmingham. Who knows? It may do, it may not. There's nothing to give in football. But I think the way Preston have started, I think they've got to be taken seriously, certainly in the sense that they could make a playoff push. It seems mad when they're saying that at the top of the league at the minute. But you know, you would expect over the course of the season, the likes of Leeds and Leicester to, to sort of go up through the gears and dominate and surpass a team like Preston. But... Like you said, I think Preston, they've got the depth now. They've got the quality. And, you know, they didn't even have Will Keane on the pitch at the weekend because of that injury that he picked up on international break with with Ireland. So 
it just goes to show that there is a lot of depth in that Preston squad and that bench was very, very strong on Saturday, it must be said. So I think all of a sudden Preston, though a lot of people are doubting whether they can maintain, say, an automatic promotion push, I think they've got it in them to mount a playoff push. There's always that one team that you don't expect at the start of the season. Maybe Preston this year are that team. Big game against Birmingham on Tuesday night at Deepdale. That could be a really interesting one to see how that goes. And again, if Preston win, that make it six wins in a row. Really, really interesting to see. But so far, it's it's impossible to find a negative. Five wins in six, five wins on the trot. Won every home game so far. I think the only thing, if Ryan Lowe was to be perhaps critical of his players, is he just maybe like to see him that little bit more ruthless. I think that's the only thing you could question. Every home game so far has been a 2-1 win. But at the end of the day, if you get three points, who cares? They're having a brilliant start. Really pleased for them. Blackburn Rovers beat Middlesbrough 2-1, George, on what was their 5,000th league game. They become it wasn't, was it? Yeah, it was. Nobody, nobody's mentioned that. I know. Um, yeah, the EFL highlight show was done from there yesterday. I was actually sat next to uh, Hugh Woods and Croft in the press box. Um, yeah, 5,000 league games on the seventh side to do that, a nod to the history of the club as a founding member. And there was a really beautiful moment in the game which might have gone under the radar a little bit for people outside the Blackburn Rovers sphere. So I think I think it'd be good to share on this. So a couple of weeks ago, well, last month it was now, um, Matt Silito, who's the stadium announcer, unfortunately passed away at age 30, um, which was a real shock to, to people at the club. They did the, the Blackburn are great in terms of their community aspects. And um, Lewis Travis, it pro- people who watched the game against Watford will have seen Lewis Travis hand flowers to his sister who was in attendance in the away game. Well, this was the first home game at Ewood Park since that had happened. Um, so in the 30th minute, there was a big applause. And as the applause is going on, everyone's on their feet. Obviously, a highly emotional moment. Um, what happens? Hayden Carter steps into into midfield with a really good run, lovely ball and dummy from Sam Gallagher. And Sam Smodix fires it into the back of the net. And it's one of those rare moments where it, it, it was more important than the result that moment. And it did make the hairs stand up on the back of your neck a little bit. It was a really beautiful moment. Back back to the, the actual match itself. Blackburn were really, really good, particularly in the first 45 minutes. They, they were aggressive. They pressed Middlesbrough really high and they were the dominant side. They created loads of big chances. Tyrese Dolan should have scored after about four minutes heading over from an excellent cross from Callum Britton. He was brilliant all day, Britton, who's coming to the side recently at right back. Um, and they, they should have been out of sight before Smodic scored. Sam Gallagher put a header wide as well. And then a nice counter-attacking move for the second, which Smodix fires in. Probably, if you're Senny Dieng, you're probably a bit disappointed because I don't think it's a howler, but he gets a big hand on it and you probably would hope that your goalkeeper can just get enough to push that wide. But Rovers were really good value. And Middlesbrough hadn't really offered anything until they scored. And then the game completely swung. Matt Crooks is miles offside. I have no idea how... You know when you look at something and it just doesn't look right and you're just waiting for the flag to go up? And then you almost, because it's not been given, you assume he must have been on. Surely the linesman's not made such an obvious mistake. He was miles offside. Everyone in the stadium knew it. So it was a very strange one, but that completely swung the momentum. And for the remaining half an hour, it was just like a basketball match. Blackburn could have scored two or three with big chances. I'm not talking half chances, even big chances. Middlesbrough had two or three big chances. There were 36 shots in total in the game, George. And... Both teams could have had... If it had ended 4-all, it wouldn't have been much of a... I don't think anyone could have argued. I think Blackburn deserved to win the game because they were so dominant in the first half. But if either a team had been more clinical in the final half an hour of the game, it could have been 5-1 to Rovers or Middlesbrough could have won it. It really was wide open after that point. And I think that's going to be the way Blackburn have got to play because they haven't got clinical goal scorers in the team. They've got players that can... Create, you know, chance creation is no problem whatsoever. What I will say about Rovers is they are such a well-coached team. I think Yondar Thompson is probably doing a top five championship job comfortably in terms of the way he's coached this team. Interestingly, they've got no summer signings in the team on Saturday, which is inter- just shows how much they've evolved in 12 months under his stewardship, his coaching. And between both boxers, they are a top six side, in my opinion. It's the bits in the both boxes, in the 18-yard box, which define championship games. And particularly in the attacking sense, they're going to need three, four chances before they put the ball in the back of the net. So they've got to go gung-ho. They've got to commit men forward or 
they won't create as many chances and they'll not take those chances. They're not built to play fine margin football because they haven't got the quality in attack in terms of that ruthlessness in front of goal. Now, Smodics could do that. He's got four goals in six games. He's certainly been really good for them in 2023 after a difficult adaptation period at the start of the uh, his first season at the club. He definitely looks like someone that wants to burden that goal-scoring responsibility. Got a first look at Semir Telelovic, who signed on deadline day as well, who looks raw, but looks like he can certainly cause issues. Um, and they've got players like Hedges, Dolan, who need to step up, going to need to score some more goals. But I was really impressed with Rovers, particularly in that first 45 minutes. And I I really don't, you know, Yondal Thomason is getting the absolute most out of this group of players. And it's really hard to see why they won't be right up there challenging again. They've got deficiencies in the squad. It's a really young group, but Thomason's such a good coach and he's doing such a good job there. And I don't think that should go under the radar. No, I fully agree. I fully agree. Um, I've seen the highlights of this game, like I have the others, and I, I'd noticed on the like on the on the lineup graphic on the TV that there wasn't any summer signings in that eleven. I thought that was quite interesting, but judging by what I saw of the first half highlights in particular, it made no difference. I thought Blackburn looked really, really good. I thought Callum Britton down the right hand side looked a real threat from right full back. Um, Ryan Hedges again, his dangerous self got the assist for Smonix second. Smonix with a couple of goals and. Sammy Smonix, I must say, I've been looking at some stats earlier on, actually. He's got five goal contributions in the Championship already this season. Four goals, one assist. Only managed seven in the whole of last season. So, only two away from equaling that by mid-September is quite impressive. So, he's certainly on an upward trajectory. And like I've said on this podcast quite a few times, I was a big fan of him when he was at Colchester many years ago and then at Peterborough. So, I think, you know, if you if you supply him, you, you've got a really creative midfielder there as a goal scorer as well. But obviously, you, you were at this game, you saw more of it than me, but based on the highlights I saw, I thought Blackburn looked really, really good. Like you said, well coached. They, they've got an understanding about them now, and it's still a very, very young team. Very inexperienced, really, when you take into account how young it is. But they look fearless, and they've got a spring in their step, and they do play some really, really nice football. And I think when you look at the start that they've had this season... I think they can be pretty satisfied with what they've done so far. 10 points from the first six. It's a nice, round, solid figure. Level on points with Southampton and Sunderland at the minute, sitting in eighth place, only a point outside the top six. I think, you know, I think they've got it in them to mount another top six charge this year. Whether the, the lack of an experienced, potent number nine at this level, obviously, well, Jury remains out on Televich. We'll see what he can do. He might be brilliant. We just don't know yet. Obviously, he's... He's only just arrived at the club, but I just think maybe if they brought in experienced number nine who knows this league, they might be just about a little bit more equipped, but you never know. We've seen many foreign imports down the years come over here and, and hit the ground running. Hopefully that'll be the case for Blackburn, but I think overall, I think they can be really satisfied with the start they've made. It's been solid, it's been good, and I think, to be honest with you, looking ahead, that game with Sunderland on uh, Wednesday night could be quite an interesting one. It'll be interesting to see how that plays out because both sides go into it in, in, in reasonably good form after the last few games. So, yeah, I think Yondal Thomason certainly onto something, continuing to to work his magic. And we've often said, haven't we, and it's sort of a, I suppose it's sort of a similar case to, to when Chris Wilder was at Sheffield United. Obviously, Yondal Thomas has not got the promotions to equal Chris Wilder in that regard yet, but Wilder was always a coach that, he made the best out of what he got. He always improved players. And we're seeing that with Yondal Thomason in the sense that he is, through coaching and his management credentials, getting the very best out of these young players. And I just think he has done an excellent job since taking over at Blackburn in, in summer in the summer of last year. Looks, looks like, to me, he's got the potential to have a really good management career in this country. And there's something about, you know, Danish managers isn't there, that come to the Championship. We saw with Thomas Frank at Brentford, just how well he's done in this country. So, you never know. Yondal Thomasin, he didn't have a bad playing career. And at the moment, he's making a good fist of a manager. So, a good win for, for Blackburn. But as for Borough, they, they are in a real rut. I've worked it out today, actually. They've won two of their last 16 Championship games, including the playoff semi-finals against Coventry at the end of last season. So, two wins in 16 it's it's really, really bleak for Michael Carrick. And I don't know about you, but I, I, obviously you saw the game, but do does the performances, what you saw on Saturday, sort of reflect Borough's current form or was the signs of sort of maybe they are going to turn a corner, do you think? I felt having not seen them live in the flesh 
before the game that they were a bit unlucky with the points tallied they got for the performances. They weren't great until they scored. I have to say they didn't. They were re- they were they were quite passive. I thought Rovers did a re- whether it's Rovers being excellent and they were excellent, but Middlesbrough for very little in terms of they just didn't build any passes. Like I expected them to try and dominate the ball a little bit, and they just were quite happy to let Rovers have the ball, and they were quite easy to press. Lati Lafafuk looked really bright. In fairness, he looked like the one on the counter attack that could have caused some problems, but. I thought they were really passive and just looked a bit blunt and short of confidence and short of ideas going forward until they scored. And then once they scored, it almost like woke them up. And they, they really could have had three, you know, two or three goals in that last half an hour, but so could a Blackburn. It could have finished 4 all, or Rovers could have won 5-1. Like, it depends who was more clinical. In the end, no one scored, which probably underlines where both teams are at in terms of their potency in front of goal. Um, Huddersfield Town, they beat Rotherham United 2-0 in a big game. Probably more interestingly is the future of Neil Warnock, which is going to be discussed on Monday, as we record on Sunday night, for a press conference where seemingly he's going to announce that he's stepping down in some way, shape or form after the Stoke City game in midweek. Um, But they beat Rotherham in this, and I thought they were good value for it. They've been quite unlucky, I think, with some of the the results this, this season so far, Huddersfield, and having beaten... West Brom before the international break to get their first win of the season. This was a really good result to follow it up. Josh Caroma with the opening goal. I just want to say, big well done to the referee and to both sets of players for not kicking the ball out because someone went down. If it's not a head injury, it is not anyone's responsibility to kick the ball out unless Rotherham want to. Huddersfield, keep playing. The team should keep playing unless the referee, it's up to the referee to stop the game, not the players. So if Rotherham want to kick the ball out, that's fair enough, it's their player. But Huddersfield have got every right to keep playing unless the referee stops. It's not a head injury. It's for the referee to dictate that, not the players. So I've got no issue with that. Josh Cromer with the opener from close range. And in fairness, neither did Rotherham United manager Matt Taylor. Um, and then the second was a clinical finish from Sorba Thomas after a good move. They're just going to need more goals from Caroma and Thomas, who both got the capabilities of getting double figures and they're going to need to because they didn't sign a striker and a bit, I'm just intrigued with Huddersfield the bigger picture obviously is, is who's going to come in if Warnock does indeed announce he's stepping down as we all expect Yeah it's, it's certainly overshadowed that victory hasn't it the the post-match uh, news of Neil Warnock's press conference oh, sorry, on Monday the News or not the news have you seen the, um, the interview BBC Leeds did rumor? I have it's indeed I know on Monday yeah, he's basically said, turn up and you'll see what happens. It's in typical Neil Warnock fashion, but I think reading between the lines, we, we know what, what announcement is going to come tomorrow. And by the time many of you are listening to this, it probably the news will almost certainly be out there. So we'll see what happens on that score. But as for the, the uh, matters on the pitch itself, a good win for Huddersfield. A really good win. They've, they've followed it up after getting that victory at West Brom, as you said. And you almost fear, don't you, when a team's had a bit of a sluggish start to the season, they get a win and then comes the international break. It risks just disrupting that momentum and impacting that confidence a little bit. But for Huddersfield, they probably couldn't have dreamt for a better fixture with Rotherham's away record. And that's just continuing to get worse and worse. It must must be a nightmare following Rotherham away from home if you're a diehard Miller supporter because you'd almost go into every away game now expecting to lose. It's, uh, it's a bit of a sorry state of affairs, Rotherham's away record. But for Huddersfield... I think their fans can be, be pleased to see Sorba Thomas back at his sort of towards his best. Really good assist for the first goal. Took his took his goal for the second really, really well. Good composure for a, a lovely low finish into the bottom corner. Because there is a player in there, obviously. He went out on loan to Blackburn for the second half of last season and didn't really pull up any trees anywhere close to his best level. And I think Neil Warnock's the sort of manager that could probably get a tune out of somebody like him. But that might not be the case for... for much longer, to be honest, with obviously the news we've seen over the weekend, which we're now anticipating his exit. But I think for Huddersfield, again, similarly to Cardiff, I think seven points from the first six, it's a solid, respectable start. We ranked Huddersfield's transfer window last week as the worst in the division. Really disappointing summer let down, and it almost felt like Neil Warnock was going to be the man to give them any chance of staying up this season, and that might not be the case now. So it's going to be really interesting to see what they do who they're going to bring in if it is indeed Neil Warnock going to be leaving the club. So we'll see what happens on that score. But for Huddersfield, looking at the game and the game alone on Saturday, good win, good performance, albeit against a poor team away from home. But uh, I think Huddersfield can be, like I say, genuinely satisfied with the start they've made this season for 
when you compare what they did in the transfer market. Sunderland beat Queen's Park Rangers 3-1 on Saturday, George. QPR took the lead through Kenneth Powell. Really nice finish into the far corner. I fancied QPR to get a result in this one, and I'd be intrigued how it would have played out if it had been 11 v 11, but Jack Colback was sent off in the first half. Right decision. I thought it was a little bit harsh on first view, but there's an angle behind uh, the challenge where you can see his studs rate down the calf of Joe Bellingham. So it's, it was the right decision. It was a red card. And Sunderland, once they got themselves level through a deflected Jack Clark strike, um, got themselves in control of this one, really. Dan Ballard's goal was lovely. Not his finish, but the build-up play, which uh, centred around Alex Pritchard, someone who could have left the club this summer, but opted to stay or, or didn't have the right offer. Um, lovely one-two. Gets in there, a good save from Begovic, but Ballard taps in the rebound. And then Abdullah Bar, who was really bright, I thought, against Southampton. Um, he finished off at the back post, keeping Patrick Roberts out of the team at the minute. And he was there with a left-footed finish on the bounce to make it 3-1 for Sunderland. So I think this would have been really entertaining to see how it played out 11 v 11, particularly with Sunderland behind. But in the end, I do think QPR are still playing well. I still don't think that they're one of the worst teams in the championship at the moment. But a little bit of misfortune with the red card and, and Sunderland took full advantage. Yeah, they certainly did, obviously. QPR got off to the perfect start. Brilliant goal from Kenneth Powell. And then, obviously, the red card for Jack Colback, which was, was fully justified. It was a potential leg break of that challenge. It was a nasty one on Joe Bellingham. And he obviously saw red, and that changed the the sway of the game. And, and Sunderland capitalised on that. And it was strange because, obviously, you had QPR as your shot for the weekend, and I had Sunderland for my banker, which I thought was quite interesting. I was really confident that Sunderland were going to win this game after what I saw against Southampton prior to the international break. And whether the red card had a major say in it or not, we'll, we'll never know. But obviously Sunderland got, got the job done. The yeah, but QPR, you've got to take into account their home record, which is absolutely abysmal. Sunderland have got much better technical players and obviously come off the back of a 5-0 win against Southampton. So we'll never know. We won't. It's one of those things. But in terms of what did happen... Sunderland obviously got a, a really good win on the board. They played well and, you know, some good goals in there. Certainly bars for the third one, emphatic finish into the top corner. And I just think Sunderland, when you've got players like a Jack Clark and players like that, you've always got game changers. You've got match winners in there. And that's where I feel Sunderland are at. I think... Like I've said on previous episodes of this podcast, Sunderland have got a very young team. They've got a lot of young, exciting players. But Tony Mowbray is probably the perfect manager for them. He's got that track record of developing young players. And I'll reference Harvey Elliott again. Obviously, oversaw his development on loan at Blackburn from Liverpool a few years ago. He obviously had Ahmad from Manchester United last year who flourished under his management. And Sunderland, again, they went down that path in the summer with bringing in young, hungry talent, Joe Bellingham being one. Semedo from Benfica being the other. Um, Mason Burstow came in on loan from Chelsea on, on on deadline day. You know, it's it's those the sort of players that Premier League clubs are willing to place into the hands of Tony Bowery. They trust him to nurture them. They trust him to develop them. So, I, again, I'm excited for Sunderland. I think they're a team that, when they're up and at it, they can really turn it on and can do a lot of damage to teams. So, a good away win, three goals, Back-to-back wins, obviously having beaten Southampton by five prior to the break. And again, another team with 10 points, a solid return from their first six games. And like I said earlier on, that game with Blackburn on Wednesday night in midweek, you might be listening to this afterwards. Uh, but uh, I think that one will be, uh, be quite a tasty one. I'm sure you'll be looking forward to being in attendance at that one. I am. It should be a good game by all accounts. Two teams in form, as you've said. Sheffield Wednesday, they're still winless. They were beaten 1-0 by Ipswich at Hillsborough. That's three games Wednesday have played, given uh, Hillsborough, given how impre- impressive their form was at home last year. Three defeats. And in the first half in particular, there was a huge gulf between the two teams. It was hard to really imagine that these were two teams that came together last year, both with 96 and what did, did they finish on? 98 in 98. the end? 98 in the end, Ipswich. But there was a huge gulfing class between the um, between the two teams, particularly in that first half. They got the goal through Connor Chaplin. Nice move down the right. I'm not sure what the Wednesday defence is doing on that right-hand side. Gets in behind Patterson too easily. No tracking, no runners being tracked from midfield. Chaplin's got oceans of space in the 18-yard box. Good finish. 
And let's be fair, this could have been more had it not been for the uh, impressive performance of Devis Vasquez in goal for the Owls, uh, pulling off a number of good saves to keep Freddie Ladapo in particular. There was one in the first half that he pulled off a good save and Ladapo should have scored. But there was, this was comfortable for Ipswich, although Wednesday tried to put a bit of pressure on in the second half. They didn't have a shot on target, which is pretty damning when you're behind from the 45th minute. And the pressure's mounting on Cisco. I said to you privately earlier that I think he's been dealt a terrible hand and I think anyone that comes into Sheffield Wednesday has got a huge task because of the ownership and I think that is the biggest issue with Sheffield Wednesday is the ownership and I don't think they will ever be successful until that is resolved but I have got absolutely no confidence in Cisco Munoz as Sheffield Wednesday manager. If he he couldn't inspire me to look out my window never mind run for a brick wall as a player so I just don't see He's just got nothing about him. He's not even got... I remember him having a bit of charisma again when he was Watford manager. I'm not even getting that from him. He's already been spiky with the local media. The handling of Marvin Johnson's just weird. And again, I want to stress, I don't think anyone could do that well in the circumstances that he's been put under. Terrible hand he's been dealt. But he's not doing a good job either, is he? Let's be honest. And it, there's just no inspiration that things are going to turn around for me for Sheffield Wednesday. No, I think I think I'm inclined to agree. And Wednesday now are in a position where they desperately, desperately need something to lift the spirit of that football club because the fans they they've had enough. And like I said on on previous episodes of this podcast, I cannot recall the mood of a football club changing so drastically in such a short space of time. Obviously, the euphoria created by the infamous Peter Rakum back in the playoff semi-finals last season in League One to then win the playoff final in the, literally the last second of the game against Barnsley, to then allowing Darren Moore to leave, obviously ongoing dispute with that. Dave Ponchancier, the Owls chairman, releasing another statement last week um, to hit back at Darren Moore again. And the fans at that point, they'd kind of moved on from that situation. They'd buried it, it was done. But Dave Ponchancier, sort of decided to rekindle it again by having another pop at Darren Moore. And it's just an, it's a situation that's completely unnecessary and unneeded. Wednesday obviously got a point at Leeds prior to the international break with a battling performance. They could have won that game if they'd taken the couple of chances that came their way. And that maybe sort of felt maybe half-heartedly like it could be a potential turning point after losing the first four. They got that point. And then... They're beaten by Ipswich and yeah, anybody who wasn't at that game who has not studied it sort of thing will look at it and think they've lost 1-0, they've been narrowly edged out. But as you said, if it wasn't for Devis Vazquez, the on-loan AC Milan goalkeeper, Wednesday would have been absolutely hammered in that game, possibly 3 or 4-0. They, they were outclassed, particularly in the first half. It was really, really poor. So it's just a, it's a big major issue that Wednesday have got because like I say, like I said on the podcast last week the, with the the transfer review that we did, the recruitment was so scattergun. It was so uninspiring. Very mixed modge signings from sort of different areas, sort of, you know, not really sort of a succession plan there and any sort of cohesion with it. I just look at Wednesday now and I just think, like you said, nothing is going to change until either Dave Ponchancy or the Wednesday owner changes his ways or sells that club, which is highly unlikely because of the type of character that he is. If he's going to sell that club, for me, he's going to demand an absolute extortionate price that nobody is likely to commit to. I think that's the way it is because he's he's regularly stressed how much money he's lost over the last few years, which is understandable with relegations, COVID and things like that. But there's been just mismanagement from the very top. from And it's just, it's, it's showing no signs of changing. I think we can be truthful. And I think... Like you said to me earlier on, privately away from this podcast, you said about, obviously, Cisco Munoz has been dealt a very bad hand, which is very, very true. At the same time, he's not helping himself. There's nothing to suggest that the team is looking sort of in line with his vision. I mean... What is the vision? That's the thing. What is the vision? What is the style of this player, this team? I've seen Wednesday play live three times this season. Two of those, albeit in the Carabao Cup against lower league opposition. And Wednesday were outclassed in both games, to be fair, against Stockport and Mansfield, they were awful. But this is the thing. What is the style of play? What are Wednesday trying to achieve? And we've not even mentioned the highlight of this. They didn't even muster a single shot on target in this game, a home game. They've not led at any point in a home game this season. They only, I think they've led for about nine minutes when they were away at Hull City in that 4-2 defeat. 
think they led for about nine or ten minutes. That's all they've led for this season. They've scored one goal in the last four. But like I said, going back to the owner, Dave Ponchance here, until he changes his ways, nothing is going to change at this football club. And another thing that I'll say is, we've seen over the weekend increasing calls for Wednesday to chat for to sack Chisco Munoff. Points are valid, very valid. That there is sort of no sign of an improvement coming or around the corner. But the question is, who do you get? Because we've seen Dapon Chanciri, the statements he's produced in recent weeks, going into detail about Darren Moore's contract, the wages he demanded. I can't imagine any other owner out there going and releasing details like that publicly. So it raises the question, what sort of manager with an ounce of credibility, certainly in English football, is going to want to work for Dapon Chanciri? For me, I think it's a very, very hard job to sell. And again, would it be someone from overseas looking for a route or a route back into English football, just as Chisco Munoz was? So, yeah, it's a really sad state of affairs for Wednesday at the minute. And to be quite honest, that game with Middlesbrough on Tuesday night, where obviously both sides are looking for their first win. If Wednesday don't win that game, I think there could be really, really big problems ahead for that club. They've got Swansea away at the weekend, the other side who are yet to win. So a huge, huge week for Wednesday, defining five days also for Chisco Munoz and potentially his uh, his Owls career. But as for Ipswich, they just keep on rolling, don't they? Bounce back from that um, defeat to Leeds with back-to-back wins now, beating Cardiff prior to the break and then winning at Hillsborough. 18 wins in the last 21 league games for them now. Remarkable run. And even when they don't win by scoring three or four, they still find a way to get the job done. Five wins in six. What a start for Kieran McKenna. Watford beat Birmingham 2-0, George. Quite an even game, I thought, at 0-0. Uh, Lee Buchanan sent off. I didn't see what the first yellow card was, obviously, from the highlights, but the second one was certainly a yellow card. So you'd have to say probably no complaints about that. I've not seen an uproar about the first booking, but I haven't seen it. Um, and they got the win Watford in stoppage time with two goals. Rajevic, who I think looked really bright. Um, he looked bright off the bench in the game against Blackburn, which was his debut. Obviously scored against Coventry as well. He scored, he scored two, scored two against Coventry. And then a, a good looping header into the far corner, which got them the points here. Um, Andrews deflected strike, put the, the gloss on the scoreline in stoppage time. But it was quite an even game, two teams. I do think Watford have been encouraging, I would say. I think they've got a little run in them coming, potentially. I feel like they are just on the verge of something. I think they're, they're, they're a, they're, they've, they've impressed me. I'm... I'm, I'm feel more positive about Watford than I did at the start of the season under Valerian Ismail. The shift in style has been really interesting because they've not been anywhere near as direct as we would have anticipated from Ismail's time at West Brom and at Barnsley. But yeah, Rajevic seems like a good fit as the number nine that was really missing in those early weeks at the start of the season. And it was a good header, good clinical finish. Uh, three and two for him, which is a great start. The red card obviously does make a big, big impact on this game, but... Nothing really to worry about for Birmingham and a good win for Watford. A very good win for Watford. Left it late, but they found a way to get the job done. And obviously Birmingham's run of resistance, that unbeaten start of the season, comes to an end. But I think for Valerian Ismail, I think, like you said, I think he can be reasonably satisfied with the start that he's made at Watford. I mean, he's only got a couple of wins. He, he was beaten as well by Stevenage in the in the Carabao Cup, which was a bit of a downer. But two wins from his first really seven. About that. Still a defeat, isn't it? At the end of the day, they should be beating teams like Stevenage, no disrespect. But in terms of the league form, it's obviously been two wins, two draws, two defeats from the first six. That was their first win since the opening day uh, against QPR. So, steps in the right direction. But I think we saw when they went to Coventry a couple of weeks ago in that 3-3 draw, if it wasn't for some costly errors, they probably would have won that game. So, there are signs that Watford are beginning to move in the right direction. And there's been talk over the weekend that he's going to be rewarded already with a new contract, which seems a little bit hasty to me. It's very early on into his tenure, obviously seven games in. But I suppose for Watford, it's it's um, you know it's got to be seen as a positive with their hiring and firing policy. But we'll we'll see what they do on that score. But obviously they left this one late. Birmingham had their chances. Jay Stansfield hitting the post with that wonderful long range effort in the second half. And Birmingham did have the, did have chances before that as well. So I don't think Birmingham can look back on this with a with a sort of sense that where they've played badly. They'll just be disappointed they didn't take the chances when they arose. And obviously the red card so late on game gave Watford that little bit of belief heading into injury time where they got a couple of goals. So 
I don't think for Birmingham that it can be too downhearted. They've had a really good start to the season. They, they, they went into the weekend themselves and Preston as the only two unbeaten sides left in the division. So I don't think they can be too downhearted. For Watford, let's just see where it takes them. It's only a second win. Don't want to get too carried away. But at the same time, I think the style of play and the sort of the the players they're bringing through now, we're just seeing little signs of something different with Watford where they're just developing their own bits of talent. They're finding sort of hidden gems. Whereas in the past they've they've sort of had the big the big names on big wages at this level where it's not necessarily worked. So it's playing holding midfield is interesting. It is. He's moved into that role, hasn't he? And obviously Delhi Bashir is playing slightly higher ahead of him and just seems like Valerie Nismel sort of just building a new vision for this football club, shall we say. It feels a little bit different, but for the better. So I think he's he's had a good start. Jury remains out whether he deserves a new contract so soon. But let's see what Watford do. They're a very hard club to predict, as we as we all know. So yeah, good start to the season. Solid, progressive, and just let's see where it takes them. And then finally, Norwich City beat Stoke City 1-0. Not a lot in this game. Jack Stacey pouncing on a loose ball in the penalty area to score his first goal for the club. Um, and the other big chance for Stoke City was Tyrese Campbell dragging wide. Really hasn't happened for Stoke away from home. Um, not even scoring goals, never mind getting points on the board. Norwich, it's a good re- uh, response having lost to Rotherham before the international break. They'll be pleased about that. Um, and without the injured Josh Sargent obviously getting over the line is... Very important. Sarah looked good again in this game. He's had a great start to the season. But um, they've tweaked the shape a little bit. They've gone back to more of a 4-2-3-1, having played 4-2, if you like, in the opening weeks with Fashnak coming into the team, Adam Eder leading the line, and, and um, Ashley Barnes playing as the number 10. Signed Kenny McLean to a new deal of the international break as well. And a clean sheet for Norwich, which is quite a rarity as well. So they'll, they'll be really pleased with that. Uh, and a good three points at Carrow Road, which... We, lest we forget, was was a very was a huge rarity last season. Yeah, and three wins out of three at home this season. Of course, they've won every home game so far. Really good start in that sense, and they bounced back from that that defeat to Rotherham prior to the international break. They've won four of their opening six games, and Norwich first fans are reading the season, I think. second. They obviously won four 0 at Huddersfield. That was the one. Yeah. First, first clean sheet at home, shall we say? So you've got a first of some category of some sort. But yeah, I think. Norwich, when you consider the start that they've had, they've had a mixed bag of fixtures. They've got a few tough ones on the horizon, though. This, this Certainly this coming week, Leicester at home on Wednesday night and then Plymouth away next Saturday. There'll be two very different tests that should tell us more about where this Norwich team is at. But I think David Wagner can be really, really pleased with the way he started because the squad was decimated in the build-up to this game. A lot of players away on international duty. Apparently, they were down to the bare bones in terms of what they had to work with in the week and the build-up to this game. So... The fact that they've gone there, um, got the win, clean sheet. Apparently, they were the luck a little bit in the second half. I was reading some comments from Norwich City fans on Saturday evening who said the second half wasn't great, but they dug in, they found a way, got the job done. And obviously, Jack Stacey, he's, he's had a really good start to life at the club and now he's got his first goal, so that'll do wonders for confidence for him. And I just think, like, like we've said with a few other clubs this evening, I think Norwich are now a team that are sort of have rebuilt an identity. They've, they've, they've recruited sensibly. We, we were critical of it in some aspects in the summer, saying maybe they were going for a little too older heads, older legs, but at the same time, they needed that injection of experience. And that's what some of those players have brought. Ashley Barnes being one, Shane Duffy another. Duffy, though, not quite... Uh, Jack Stacey, though, not quite as old as those two. He's certainly got plenty of experience at this level. So I think Norwich can be really pleased with the start they've had. Four wins out of the first six, 13 points on the board. Top goal scorers in the division as well. Be, be an interesting game against Leicester on, on Wednesday night. Could be uh, quite interesting to see how that goes. But if they can get something from that game, maybe it does sort of show that they are going to be in the in and around the playoff picture, maybe even the top two this year. So still early days. But in terms of the, the transformation from last season, particularly with their home form, really encouraging for David Van. I think he'll be really pleased with what they've achieved so far. Two draws in the Championship. Hull City, Friday night Hull City has been this season for some reason. I don't know if that's because of the rugby on the Saturday, maybe. Um, they beat, uh, they drew one all with Coventry City. Uh, Joel Latibaudier scoring the first goal, header from a corner. And Aaron Connolly with a nice headed goal. Um, a weird goal. You don't really see headers from that sort of distance looping 
over the goalkeeper after a good cross from Tyler Morton, who did well on debut after coming on as a substitute. And Bristol City drew 0-0 with West Brom. Uh, Bristol City having the best chance in this game, but Mark Sykes hit the post after pouncing on a, a very poor mistake from Alex Palmer, who I still maintain has not had a very good start to the season. Didn't deal with a, a ball outside of his area, and Sykes hit the post when he might have scored, although the angle was quite tight. A point apiece for either of those two teams. And that marks the end of this week's Championship Chat podcast. Thank you for listening. Please make sure you are subscribed to your usual podcast provider and you'll get the latest podcast from us every single week. Follow us on Twitter at ChampChatPod24 as well. And a huge thank you, as always, to our sponsors, Cards Accepted, for supporting the podcast this season. Make sure you go and check them out at cardsaccepted.co.uk. Thank you for listening and we'll catch you next week for another episode of the Championship Chat Podcast. This is the Championship Chat Podcast, your home of news, views and debate from England's second tier.